Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning era of Shabbos. And I do remind everybody, as I um, introduce Malcolm, that he will be uh, spending, and you have an opportunity to spend Pesach in Puerto Vallarta. There's a website, PesachInVallarta.com, and there's a phone number, 786 290 Five nine one nine, Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be in here with you from a foreign country. I'm traveling. I'm in New Jersey. Wow! <laughs> you crossed the Hudson <laughs> River. They gave me a visa, but for my the bar mitzvah of my grandson Benjamin Bach. Nice. Be the Shabbos and Mazel Tov, uh, mazel tov to all the, the family, and we shall only have all of us. Well, as you know, it's always extra special when you know both families uh, in a simcha, and in this case, of course, I do. So I say to everybody, the extended family, Mazal Tov, and you have some amazing uh, grandchildren. I'm sure this is one of them. So, Absolutely. Mazal Tov to you. Um, I would assume that among all the people you've met, and in your career you've met many and have dealt uh, on a regular basis with many, I would bet Moshe Ahrens was one of the most interesting and one of the most dignified that you came across. You know, it, it's interesting that I think his his passing uh, evoked uh, wonderful responses, but but too minimal for the real role that he played in Israel. He was three times defense minister. He was foreign minister. He was one of the most successful ambassadors to the United States. And uh, I'll tell you some inside baseball that uh, when he was ambassador. I was working at the uh, JCR. I was director of the JCRC in New York, and had a very close relationship with him. And he had a deputy whose name was Benjamin Netanyahu. You may have heard of him, and uh, he was really a mentor for Netanyahu for, for a long time. And then later, relationship became more strained. Uh, he was the most consistent and integrous person I've ever met. He. Uh, up to last year, exactly one year ago, he spoke at the President's Conference annual mission in Israel. He was 91 years old. He looked as trim and as young as he did 20 years ago, and he died quietly in his sleep. He, he had been sick, but he was still vigorous and, as I said, came to Jerusalem from his home in, in near Tel Aviv and, and uh, spoke and uh, was really remarkable. And when he was ambassador, now we're talking about the early 80s, he, uh, and they were, re- they were building the new embassy, he designed the third floor to be a Hasbara center, huh. anticipating all that we have seen over these years, over the intervening 35 years. He uh, planned that it would be a technologically advanced. He said, if we're going to deal with Hasbara properly. We have to have the right tools. We have to have the right facilities. And uh, frankly, we raised several million dollars for it uh, from private individuals so that it wasn't a burden on the government. And at the last minute, the foreign ministry made him turn back the money and killed the project. And think what would have happened had they done it then and what capacity they would have by now. And uh, uh, another recollection was when he you know, he was the father of the Laviv fighter plane, which was stopped because of American intervention and opposition. And he asked me to come to see it. And I, I went to the 
the Air Force Base, and my parents happened to be there, and they came, and you can't imagine what this plane was like, and it, it literally flew into your heart. And I stood on the runway with him, and the, the plane went through maneuvers and then landed right in front of us. And it, it, till today, I think that many people could legitimately argue that it was a mistake, that Israel would have been more independent, that it, as it advanced in every other technological area, it would have made even more progress in this area. Uh, and we see that sometimes, you know, sales like the one to Croatia are blocked by the United States. Uh, Israel selling some, I think, rehabilitated uh, 35-year-old F-16s, or uh, and the independence of the United States, uh, uh, as close as the relationship is and as beneficial and supportive of the United States has been, I think that it, it, it was a shame that they could not proceed with the development. And, and the, the argument, of course, was that it was too expensive and so because the U.S., just to to make sure I understand, it's just that because the U.S. is always looking over Israel's shoulder when it comes to expenditures for defense, etc., because of the because of what the U.S. holds over Israel when it comes to military and, and foreign aid, right? Is that what you mean? And because the domestic industry often resents, you know, Israel getting contracts, Israel getting, you know, yeah. becoming too independent. Yet, yet another argument for Israel's true independence when it comes to financial assistance. Yeah, well, I think that uh, uh, one can't really complain that over the years the United States has been right. so generous. And, you know, the bill that they're talking about all the time, the new bill in front of Congress, is right. the one that would give the 10-year $3.8 billion a year. And you heard the president talk about an even larger number, because when you take into account so much of the other things that Israel and the United States share, the United States prepositions a billion dollars in equipment in the Negev for its purpose and use, but in in a case of a war, Israel would be able to draw down some of it. You know, as somebody who who grew up during the era it, it, it and who loves observing this stuff, it, it looked like Aaron's loved government but but hated the politics. Would that be absolutely an, right? That's it, right? He understood and the course of his own integrity. He did not succumb. He's not somebody. And I think that was part what led to the alienation with him and Netanyahu, that he felt Bibi, who is a master politician, uh, he did not like any compromises on what he felt were basic principles. And uh, he was not cut out to be a politician. He was a professor of aeronautical engineering, I think, when he went into government. Last time I saw him was Shabbat Chayei Sarah in Hebron. So I guess he had no problem going wherever he wanted to go. <laughs> right? No, he did not. And, uh, and he continued, as I said, into his 90s. Yeah, amazing. Uh, right. Which was amazing. We remember Moshe Aaron's for, uh, fondly. Uh, so one of the things that um, uh, that we didn't discuss last week was the Shin Bet arrest of the five youths, the five teenagers in this... Uh, um, in this incident where somebody, possibly them, uh, were involved in the killing of the uh, uh, Arab woman on the roads. It seems the Shin Bet has released four of the five at this point. Uh, and the, the question is, and apparently this is uh, one of the hot topics in Israel, is whether the Shin Bet is going overboard in terms of their interrogation tactics, especially when it comes uh, to Israelis as opposed to those who are often cons- often brought in uh, under the assumption that they are the enemy, and I and you know I'm trying to be as politically correct as possible as I say that. Um, what can you tell us about this whole episode, and in fact, whether the Shin Bet is getting this reputation for dealing with Israelis too harshly? Well, I don't know enough about the case because we don't, you know, a lot of the details 
are uh, about the charges are, are secret, as you said. Uh, many will go, but it doesn't mean that they're not still suspect, and they are still arresting people. More people have been interviewed and interrogated about the case, and there is that accusation that that um, the Shin Bet has been under a lot of uh, pressure, external pressure about uh, you know these cases that the appearance that. Uh, um, when it's a Jew is involved in some sort of incident of this kind or attack of this kind, that they are not pursued in the same with the same vigor, uh, and I think that uh, you know sometimes they make an example out of a case, and at the same time when somebody's killed, they should be pursuing it right. and uh, doing it uh, to the full extent of the law. Nobody argues against that, but there is a lot of resentment, and and people have come to testify or realize others about the. Uh, both about the individuals and about the case. So I think we have to let it uh, play out. But the, um, you know, this is not the first time that we've heard these kind of charges. Here in this country, we always think that government officials and the media, frankly, are, are, are sort of like the checks and balances for interrogation techniques. Is it is it sort of the same in Israel, or they get a much freer hand, the Shin Bet, uh, than what we know of in, you know, in terms of how things work here? Well, I don't know how much we really know about how things work anywhere when it comes to what uh, you know security services sometimes do and can get away with, right. and um, you know use whatever method. Uh, would anybody have argued that uh, they shouldn't use clandestine methods to go after El Chapo or to go after others here in the United States? And sometimes we we feel though that the uh, um, Charges against certain individuals do not live up to the to the seriousness of the crime that uh, is perpetrated. And when you have a Jewish terrorists, it makes a lot of noise, a lot of uh, news. The accusation of mm-hmm. quote Jewish terrorists. I mean, right. and, but you see how the newspapers play it up and how because it is rare. Yeah, and also unfortunately the, the, the other side. <laughs> Right, no, I, I, I totally get that, but the age of the suspects also, you know, plays into it. They, of know, course, right, exactly. People right. would rather hear uh, that they, you know, are, are not being treated possibly the same way an adult may be treated. Prime Minister Netanyahu goes on TV, tells us that it's going to be a dramatic speech. Tell me about with the election coming up. Tell me about the timing and the content of the Prime Minister's uh, speech this week. Well, the content was was clear. It was uh, to counter some of the charges that had been made, and talking about the fact that he wants to confront those who who are accusing him. So, you know, there are numerous cases, and the attorney general, uh, who he appointed, and who is a very wonderful man of great integrity, um, uh, he uh, indicated that he may bring an indictment or or charges against the prime minister. Before the election, Netanyahu has argued that he can't do it during the election period, that it has to be after an election. I I have a sneaking suspicion, and I have no proof of this, that he intended this to be something else. I think that there was a different kind of statement, because this doesn't rise to the kind of dramatic statement that he had announced. Oh, very good. And, And I think, because he was meeting with lawyers up until the time of the press conference, that they may have intended something else. There were reports that he was going to go to the Supreme Court against the Attorney General. Uh, there were other things that would have made more sense in terms of being an, a dramatic, those are the words they used, announcement, um, 
then this seemed to fizzle. And, and I think it hurt him politically, even if overall people may be more sympathetic listening to him and, and seeing him, and he's always very effective as a communicator and, and in getting his message across. But that the, you know, the hype gave his uh, opponents a chance to, to try and uh, you know, take some swipes at him. And while the election process is, is underway very early on, and the Likud primary is just a couple weeks away, and we already see real changes taking place with key figures not appearing or moving from party to party, Gallant now going to Likud, and uh, uh, with the split between Gabay and uh, Tsipi Livni, and uh, the negative reaction amongst the Labor Party that his uh, their convention, even though Gabay uh, was victorious there, what got his way, but the the um, uh, this week, uh, uh, Yair Lapid finally spoke out. We've heard very little from Kulana. We've heard from uh, a little from others, uh, and of course, the phenomenon of the moment is Benny Gantz. But I right. remind people that they, these things often happen. That anybody who comes out fresh out of the box in a new announcement uh, gets gets coverage. He the, and there was misunderstanding, including I didn't read it right initially. That it said that he was three points behind Netanyahu. That was on a competence uh, measure in actual seats. Likud is still around 30, and he's polling less than 15, but he's the second largest party. The question is, will they be able to align themselves with others? Will Yalom or uh, Gantz link up with one of the existing parties? Uh, will they form a coalition that would really be able to challenge um, uh, Likud? Because, you know, that goes to the president and whoever can show that they have uh, the best promise of putting together a coalition, even if it's not the most votes. And you remember when Labor actually got more seats, but Likud was the one who put together the coalition, got yeah. the nod to do it, et cetera. So the, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of shifting amongst the people. There's, I think the general assumption right now is that Netanyahu wins again, and uh, he's a very effective politician. Uh, but his ranks change, and, and uh, we'll have to see whether others, the fact that Carolyn Glick, I think, uh, made news joining the far-right party, the, the new right party of uh, Bennett and uh, Shaked, and the, the demise of the, the Mizrahi, of what was the traditional Mizrahi party, uh, Mizrahi, not Oriental, but the religious Zionist party. Right. Uh, we'll have to see if they can resurrect, their, so to speak, their, their vote. It's it's a, a very fluid and dynamic situation, but I remind people that n- n- everything changes from one week to the other. And who, uh, people who are up, once they get under the scrutiny, once they have to pass tests, we don't know what policies Gonstead represents, et cetera. So you have to hear him and see if he can convince people that he's ready to lead. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world, the web, NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Um, why, why is the Anglo presence on the Israeli political scene becoming such an issue, or does it become an issue every election cycle? It becomes a, a, an issue every time. I don't think that... Uh, the real percentages have changed dramatically, so uh, you know of candidates and stuff. So I, I don't believe that it's uh, and, and and they don't still represent a 
a vastly different percentage of the vote. So I think it just becomes a matter of hype for, for, for a while and then goes back. And the Israelis, I guess, the same way they... So the, the same way some Israeli journalists are writing about how much they resent Anglo's entering the the political fray, I'm assuming they did the same thing when the Russians did and when members of other uh, foreign groups did. They right? just not need things to write about. Why, why right. shouldn't Anglo's <laughs> be the same as everybody else? If you have a big immigration of French people, why shouldn't they be more represented? You see that a Muslim woman is on the Likud, in the, in the Likud primaries, a really remarkable woman, Dimataya. Taking who, some heat for that, huh? Uh, she's taking a lot of heat, but she said there's no other country in the Middle East that respects its citizens and gives them as much Unbelievable, and she says it like that. ...and democracy for all. And she came on an Israeli delegation, anti-BDS delegation, to the U.S., and and said, you know, that Israel was a democracy, not an apartheid state, and you can be sure, you know, she's getting threats and et cetera, but uh, courageous, and the fact she's running in a liquid primary. I mean, this is the kind of news that nobody in America gets to read because the press doesn't care, uh, you know, because it, it goes against their uh, their traditional view and, and uh, the message they're trying to communicate. When a Jordanian minister and when the Jordanian trade unions put Israeli flags at the door for people to step on as they enter buildings, that doesn't get any uh, any coverage. And, you, and when you the hostile acts that are, are done against Israel uh, hardly get noticed. But if in Israel, the most minor thing, it's because you know it's an open society. People, reporters can report whatever they want. They they're, they're free. They don't have to worry about consequences generally for um, you know telling the dark side of the story. Danny Danone, who was supposed to leave the UN to go to Likud, is now back at the UN. He is staying at the UN. He's announced that he's not going to run in the primaries, and um, uh, and will stay at the UN to continue the battle where we see that it need, it needs to be fought. The Palestinians seem to have withdrawn the uh, proposal or their action to get recognition as a state in the General Assembly and in the Security Council, although one never knows that they won't try to push it. But Abbas is coming with a delegation because he's going to chair the meeting of the G77. And I know people may glaze over about all this, but it is significant and it could have consequences. When is that? Is that in February? When is that? No, now, now. Oh, coming okay. up soon. Okay. Yeah, February. I'm sorry. Yes, I forgot. I think February is far away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it gives him a platform and he said that he's going to divert their focus, and I hope the members will, will reject this, but divert the focus from uh, their job, which is developmental uh, focus in you know, economic development. And this is supposed to be, you know, the uh, countries that are not uh, economically sound, and et cetera, and the uh, developing countries, as they're called. And he wants to use it for his political campaign. There's still evidence that they're going to international criminal court. Uh, and so he, he he is still scheduled to come. We'll have to see in the end if he does. Um, he's not going to get to see President Trump, and I don't think he will want to. Um, but now, especially after Bolton's visit, they, they were even more angry or continue to be angry, only to their own detriment. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, when it comes to the theory or the idea that there was Russian interference in the American election, so we, we we can conjecture if that happened, 
who the Russians might have wanted to become president. Now there are accusations that Russians are interfering in the Israeli election. Is it as easy to judge who they might want to be prime minister of Israel? No, there's no indication yet that about who any of the proposed interlopers will be uh, will be favoring, uh, and they may just do it for practice. But, but Israel's <laughs> well aware of it, and the uh, you know the cyber security forces are are working. There is one. There's a new tactic that somebody is using because it's happened to me now three times. Is that when talking to somebody in Israel, they it starts, it records the first 20 or 30 seconds, let's say, of the conversation and keeps repeating it and repeating it. Even though the person is talking to you, you don't hear it. You just hear the same thing over and over again. And the first time it happened to me, very honestly, I called the friend of the person I was talking to and I said, I think you should go and see him because I think he's having a breakdown or something because he keeps repeating the same thing over and over again. And, and the fact is that it's a hack. And so people who have this experience understand that this is uh, is happening more frequently. It's very disconcerting because when somebody keeps saying the same thing over and over, you say, "Yeah, but you just said that," right. and, but they don't hear it because it's not they're not they don't hear that part of the conversation and, where and it that, actually disconnects your call. And that tactic would result in what? That tactic is simply a that's a harassment tactic more uh, than anything else. But no, but it, it shows the ability and goes right. to your question about right. how. How can they influence? You know, you you can put out false messages. You can try to affect polls. You can affect other things. But Israelis are very aware of it. And I don't see really where that kind of intervention, especially because of the multiplicity of parties, uh, would make that big a difference. Unless you can say that because a few points can make the difference in which parties make the threshold. You know, there is a 3.25, I think, percent that you have to get in order to be uh, listed. And many key parties, including uh, Lieberman's party, let's say, may not make the cut. So there, perhaps you can argue that they might try to influence it, but frankly, I I don't see that it, it, it really works that well. Lieberman may not make the threshold? Yes, sir. Wow. Well, That's... don't forget you have so many parties. I mean, right. will Yalom make the 3.25? It does. It sounds like very little, but in fact, it means you have to get a pretty significant vote. Yeah. Well, they'll let us know soon, I guess, what the number... No, no well, won't know till the election. Right, but don't they have estimates based on you know prior election turnout and things oh. like that? Well, they, they do uh, a lot of polling, but, you know, Israelis are well-known to tell the truth to pollsters and then lie at the polls. Right, so they could even so say they're voting. They can never predict right. their, the, and, 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 and to your point, they, they, to your point, they could say they're voting and really not even, not even vote if they wanted to go in that direction. Not, not vote and certainly not vote right. for who the they want. They right. But, you know, in the United States, too, we see how polls can be distorted because people know that this may not be the politically correct answer to say, who you're voting for, you know, the person they really intend to vote for. So it can be come out distorted as well. So former cabinet minister Gonen Segev did uh, admit he spied for Iran, huh? He did, but he, he claims he didn't give uh, classified information, but he gave general information, um, tried to, I guess, imply that it was going to be a dual spy, but it's really embarrassing for Israel. It's embarrassing that a former minister, uh, and certainly him, uh, that he engaged in any way in these activities. Hey, what are the members of the Democratic Party who care about Israel going to do with uh, Rashida Tlaib, or do they not care, frankly? Oh, no, they care very much, and I spoke to a lot of this week, and uh, to several this week, and the, they care a lot. 
uh, I think the, the, the question that they face is, do you do her more good by continuing to publicize her and, and make her get, get her more name recognition? Remember, people don't know who she is. She came, and, and many of those who are on the extreme won by fluke elections when you really study them. As one expert briefed me this week and showed me how uh, a minority of minority elected some of them or because of a proliferation of candidates, a whole variety of of uh, different considerations. Right. But they still uh, hold the title. It. But I think it's very important that we call, in this case, her activities for what they are. And it's blatant anti-Semitism. It's bigotry when she makes the appeal to, to dual loyalty because she opposed the, you know, this bill that I mentioned. It's a, it's a composite bill that deals with uh, uh, sanctions against Syria, support for Jordan, the 10-year package for Israel aid, and the BDS legislation, which really seeks to protect states that passed the anti-BDS legislation. And she said that this was dual loyalty and that they should go and study the Constitution and that they forgot what country they represented. This is somebody who stood there with somebody wrapped (laughs) in an Israel-Palestinian flag. Right, exactly. keeps telling that that's going to be her agenda, that she is promoting... the, the a singular agenda, and had anybody made that kind of a comment, a racist, bigoted, or anti-Semitic comment, uh, under, I think, other circumstances, this would have been uh, just as simply condemned, and uh, I, I hope that the leadership of the Democratic Party will uh, act with uh, greater force. I think that right now that is a consideration, and it's a, it is a, a tactical decision about whether you go all out after them or do you try to just bury them in the you know and let them just keep uh, talking because they alienate more and more people in the process. I'm not sure that that is legitimate. I think in this case, with this kind of comment, you you have to go all out, and we have to isolate them in Congress. I think the new Congress is more favorable towards Israel than the old Congress. Wow. But you have, yes, overall, but you have in there this cancerous uh, group. And if you let a cancer go, it metastasizes, so it has to be isolated. They, they formed a, a sort of alliance amongst themselves or some sort of coalescence. Shouldn't say alliance because I don't know how far it'll go. I think ultimately it won't last, uh, although they're not at all all the same and sharing the extremist views of, but she will then become a hero for a segment of the population. And then you see Linda Sassoors and the, the others um, uh, rallying behind her that uh, um, it just, ha- you have to draw the line in the sand. You know, this you, is not acceptable. You just raised an important point. I didn't even consider how many mem- how many actual members, not Linda Sassour, actual members of the U S government, are in fact sympathetic to her or would join whatever you want to call it, an alliance or, you know, some type of camaraderie with her on these issues. I, I would still think it's a real minority, right? They're just, it's a very small group, a handful. half a dozen right. of people, some of uh, most new, who, who got elected this year, who hold these kind of, uh, of views. You know, you have two Muslim women who are elected. Uh, you have uh, others who, who um, certainly were uh, from the extreme left. They they try to build on what they see as the Bernie Sanders party, although he did not um, 
supported, but he did come out against the BDS legislation along with Diane Feinstein. They do it on the basis of, of free speech, which is, is simply not true, because this does not limit an individual's ability. This is talking about where, where states, what states uh, engage in and not what uh, individual citizens do. So the argument, and uh, I want to just suggest that people read the um, comments and the uh, brief that the Attorney General Mark uh, Bernovich in Arizona uh, filed in, in response in the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals um, because his state enacted a law and they're being sued. And that law simply says that state contractors who receive taxpayer money are now allowed to discriminate on the basis of national origin, mm. and BDS was not protected under freedom of expression. It doesn't say individuals can't. It doesn't, right. I mean, they just missed the whole point of this uh, uh, and the anti-BDS legislation, and hopefully the, none of those lawsuits are going to amount to anything. But his brief really sums it up. It, it was really uh, uh, very well done. And he says the First Amendment doesn't leave the state powerless to prevent its commerce from furthering such unsavory, unsavory and frequently murderous ends. And she has the chutzpah to say that they should read the Constitution. And the Bernie Sanders and Diane Feinstein, after Senator Cardin, revamped the legislation in order to meet those objections. So it isn't because of that they're going to oppose any BDS legislation. Understood. Um, President Sisi, does he regret going on 60 Minutes? Well, he certainly said so, and I think they made a mistake in making such a big deal out of it because I don't think that it, it amounted to too much, and it was particularly a part where he talked about his coordination, cooperation with Israel, which we have discussed um, before. Um, you know, you hype it, and you really make it into something that everybody then tuned into, and then, you know, we're surprised by the mildness of the comment and, you know, but he was more concerned about the domestic reaction to the right. public well, admission. And, and what happened? What was the domestic reaction to the cooperation with Israel comment? It seemed to be pretty minimal. Because, I mean, then if that's the case... Because it wasn't really, he didn't get into, go into the great details. It, it, well, it, it, I think what got him, and, and frankly, I mean, you're right, but I wouldn't blame CBS for this. I blame him and his staff for, you know, starting the whole procedure of insisting it not be aired. Uh, but I think what, what it was was the was when, was the um, the statement that it was the most cooperation ever that it was the highest level of cooperation ever between israel and egypt and i think that's what it was i think it was the the degree of cooperation that 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 scared them away but that had been long reported often reported you know the activities in people see the airplanes egyptian airplanes and israeli airplanes um the the, uh, cooperation in the fight in the sinai all of these things you're right and that's that's the promise it was his articulation and he, but he, then they went on a campaign to try to get CBS to cancel it. And you know, once 60 yeah. Minutes had this interview, they were not going to cancel <laughs> they're, it. They're so cover- all you do is serve to hype it. Now, <laughs> maybe he wanted to build up the audience by doing it, but I doubt that. <laughs> their, their, their promo was, watch the interview the Egyptian government doesn't want you to see. Right, I mean, <laughs> it's abandoned Boston phenomenon. <laughs> exactly. It was really funny, actually. Uh, all right, got to talk about the Bolton trip and the Pompeo trip. Start with Pompeo. Blaming President Obama for uh, so much of what's uh, developed in terms of uh, uh, terrorist activity and terrorist groups in the Middle East. Well, I think the juxtaposition, you know, that he went back to where Obama gave that famous Cairo speech at the beginning of his of his uh, term, in which he uh, laid out principles which many people think did um, characterize the foreign policy, and uh, of course 
people are very critical, as they are of this administration, of every administration. But uh, what what he was really doing was laying out the principles of what they are going to do and how that and juxtaposed them to what the Obama administration and trying to undo. And uh, but there are people who would say that you know the withdrawal from Syria is more of a, a throwback to that. Uh, and one of the criticism that is being uh, leveled about the decision, uh, which seems to be moving ahead, according to the latest reports that the Department of Defense is uh, preparing for it. Uh, we don't know what it really means in terms of the air power, et cetera. But I think Pompeo's comments coming right after Bolton's visit to Israel and then to Turkey, where Erdogan refused to meet him and, and uh, attacked his comments uh, in Israel, uh, specifically, um, uh, he said the message that Bolton gave in Israel, I think he used the word unacceptable, and he said that we're going to take actions to neutralize terrorist organizations in Syria, which means the Kurds, and the um, uh, and the purpose of Bolton's visit was to talk about the fate of the Syrian Kurdish fighters. So um, uh, I think that um, his promises and his pledges to to support the um, the Kurdish fighters and that they wouldn't withdraw until Iran was out or ISIS was uh, really finished. Well, was that a condition? I mean, would, would, would Trump have made the announcement without knowing that uh, Turkey was committed to doing that, to protecting the Kurds? Well, I can't tell you because it's still not clear what motivated the president to make it the comments right after his uh, uh, talks with uh, his discussion with Erdogan on the phone uh, and the implementation about the timing. We don't know what air power will be left there. Right, we don't but, but, know whether they'll substitute. But the reason I ask is if there wasn't a condition or discussed beforehand, it really is unfair to Turkey and to Erdogan to expect that. Well, I- first of all, it should not be. It should be expected that they're not going to go in and wipe out a domestic population and, and threaten them because they see them as uh, these are the allies of the United States. They fought against ISIS, probably the most effective fighters against ISIS, and. Um, uh, you know, Erdogan has long targeted them. Turkey sees them as a terrorist uh, group, and they have counterparts inside Turkey who have done some terrorist attacks. But the the um, I mean, this could you can't leave them just at the mercy of of the situation, especially when they've been so friendly and there are no other uh, forces right now. The Kurds then tur- turn to the Syrian army. Which moved into uh, Banjab and the, uh, the and the Turks still have a, a tremendous political uh, military power that they can uh, relatively to to amount against it. Uh, so the U.S. presence was the, the inhibitor, and the question is what what presence will remain? What what will we do to to compensate for a, a physical withdrawal of troops? But we have to remember, uh, and I think that, that, that the dominant thing here is that the president has always been opposed to, to, to American troops uh, abroad um, and vowed to bring them home. And I think that he is looking to fulfill his campaign promises across the board and that this was one of them. And it was an opportunity to, to assert that so that he can come back and, and run and say, look, here's what I promised to do. And, and here is, you know, w- w- what I've actually done. Uh, so, you know, ISIS killed 23 um, in eastern, in Syria, they killed 23 me- members of the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces just this past week. And, it, you know, this this 
um, they began an offensive, the Kurdish Arab Alliance, uh, in September with 17,000 fighters. So you're not talking about uh, a small group, and they mm-hmm. killed over 1,000 of the ISIS uh, terrorists in, in that time, or you have to call them militants, I guess. So it's so complicated, and it's it's a very delicate situation when you get sometimes confusing or, or different messages from the administration, which still remains committed. And if you listen to both Bolton and Pompeo's comments, I mean, they, they stick to the principles and the uh, commitment, um, but there are too many forces here that will uh, come into play. There are those who argue that the United States withdrawal will actually benefit Israel because they will give them more leeway, that they will back Israel as the force against uh, Iranian expansionism. Uh, you know, Russia certainly doesn't want to see Iran become dominant, uh, but is but has to try to play the game of, of uh, seeing to enforce um, some restrictions on Israel, which continues, as you've seen, its activities in Syria and keeps announcing that they will uh, continue to do so. And the United States made clear that they support Israel's right to defend itself uh, against any of these challenges, meaning also to go into Syria and to to stop the shipments and the transshipments of, of weapons, because the fear amongst many is that the removal of this thing will give, of the American troops, will give the Iranians the ability to expand the transnational highway, you know, the Tehran, uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon uh, corridor that they have been trying to establish. Yeah, and we know what that leads to. It leads to the strengthening of the enemy on too many fronts against Israel, frankly. It's exactly right. Uh, Malcolm Holmline invites you to spend Pesach in Puerto Vallarta. Go to uh, PesachInVallarta.com. Malcolm guarantees plenty of food, plenty of drink, and plenty of wonderful discussion about Iran and many other countries. All through and, the week. And in that setting, we can tell them all the real secrets about what was happening and talk about the election. So, any, uh, so, anybody who, so anybody who thought they're getting inside information by listening here, they really need to go with you, Pesach to Vallarta? Is that the story? Well, that helps. <laughs> Phone number for information, 786-290-5919. Please convey Mazal Tov wishes to your entire family and extended family on the big bar mitzvah. And have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak to you next week. Thank you, and um, we should all have only some Amen. Mazal Tov.